0: Welcome to the Shield of Camera Extractive Podcast. As we continue our discussion of the subject of uh, artisanal small-scale mining, my guest today is uh, Edward Beckham, and he is a uh, Senior Advisor to the World Gold Council. Edward has also worked in senior roles across diverse sectors, including mining oil and gas. He specializes in reputation management, strategic communications, public policy, political risk, the License to Operate and Governance, among others. Edward, thank you very much for joining me. Welcome to the Sheila Khama Extractive Podcast.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Sheila, for inviting me to join you. I look forward to our conversation. Wonderful.
0: Let me just start uh, by not being presumptuous and ask you to explain to the followers of the Sheila Khama Extractive Podcast what the World Gold Council is and what the organization, the reasons for being is?
1: Certainly. So the World Gold Council was established in uh, the late 1980s. Um, it is the market development organization for the gold industry. So it, um, it produces authoritative um, data on the industry. It aims to stimulate and sustain demand for gold and looks at the integrity and smooth operation of the gold market. Um, It also, from time to time, if there are indications that things are not working as well as they should or could, uh, does a certain amount of standard setting. Uh, It works primarily with um, the investment community uh, and central banks. We're very active and have offices in uh, China and India, who, of course, between them, account for a large proportion of gold demand. But we're also headquartered in London um, and uh, active in North America, too. And we are ultimately owned by uh, 33 of the leading um, gold mining companies. Um, but very much not intended to be a lobbying organization, but a market development organization. And in the area that has grown of importance in recent years, uh, environmental, social and governance questions, we are uh, active around issues like climate change, developing the responsible gold mining principles, looking at gold mining and the sustainable development goals.
0: That's wonderful. So given all the activities of the World Gold Council, uh, for today, I'd very much like us to focus on the interface between gold production by your members and gold production by artisanal small scale and all the sustainability issues in that space. And and I I know the Gold Council has initiated several uh, programs for addressing this so first i just want to start by asking in your view as you look at sustainability challenges as relates to large scale gold mining and artisanal small scale mining what do you think are the differences in the type of challenges that faces the industry
1: That's a very big question. Um, So, uh, artisanal mining in particular varies hugely as between different parts of the world, different sites. Um, Artisanal mining in total probably accounts for 40 to 50 million people's livelihoods. Gold by itself probably accounts for something like 20 million pe- people's uh, direct livelihoods. Um, that's a huge canvas um, on which to, to paint and think about those issues. And, and artisanal mining has also grown an awful lot as an issue. It was probably three times as many people doing artisanal mining now, as was the case at the turn of the century. In terms of um, large-scale mining, of course, uh, it has its own um, issues and challenges, um, but it's a very different sort of world. One The the large-scale gold miners operate uh, in quite a tightly regulated sense with Uh, permitting and impact assessments and tough uh, safety uh, health environment standards uh, closely regulated by host governments. Um, Artisanal mining is of course much smaller, capacities um, are smaller. Um, It's hugely important in terms of looking at issues like poverty, particularly in rural areas where there may be few alternatives um, and where climate change is further complicating matters. Um, But artisanal mining also tends to be associated with big safety challenges, uh, and occasionally in the media we read uh, stories of large numbers of people suddenly being buried in landslips. Issues around mercury pollution. So, uh, artisanal gold mining is probably the biggest single source of um, mercury emissions uh, in the world. And of course, following the Minamata Treaty, uh, that's a major focus for public policy to try and reduce those emissions. In some cases, it can be associated with gender based violence and child labor. Um, And a lot of mining from artisanal sources, because it exists in either an informal world or more directly being illegal, there can be issues around smuggling, tainting by um, criminal groups. There's a whole range of of issues. that need to be addressed by government, society um, to try and improve the situation around ASM. You mentioned the interface between LSM and ASM, these two rather different worlds, but where um, both uh, actors are trying to uh, develop gold resources. Trying to um, bridge that gap is uh, sometimes a major problem because of conflict um, and because you get overlapping claims or or activity. And often it's quite difficult for a large scale mine, which exists intrinsically in, in. Uh, a legal framework to deal effectively uh, with uh, groups who are operating outside a legal framework. And so the role of governments, I think, is really uh, significant and important in helping to increase formalisation and legality in the ASM sector. And that in itself would be a major help in making the interface between LSM and ASM um, less less raw and less difficult than it can be.
0: Mm. You, you've mentioned two issues uh, I would like to follow up on, if I may. Uh, the first one is this coexistence between uh, large-scale gold miners and small scale uh, artisanal producers. Is, is this uh, something that your members uh, are particularly concerned about? And if so, what would be some of the more recent uh, initiatives to try and facilitate uh, peaceful coexistence?
1: Well, of course. Uh... To start with, um, for a large-scale mining company, one of the things they need to do is to ensure that there's good health and safety and environment. And if you get groups of uh, artisanal miners who may have no legitimate claim coming and suddenly trying to invade a mining area that can create some very uh, major challenges um, and make uh, operations very difficult and put the safety of many people at risk. Um, but so I think that many companies, of course, are concerned about. Maintaining the security and integrity of their mining concession areas, they are also responsible on the on behalf of host governments for um, ensuring that if there's gold mining going on uh, within their concession, they're responsible to the host government for for the behaviours. And so, if for example, mercury is being used, or People are putting themselves in danger through their mining methods, that's a major problem. So you can get situations where there is very raw conflict, but quite often uh, you can get a situation where there is traditional um, community-based artisanal mining within a concession area. Um, and the Company concerned uh, may be able to work with the artisanal miners to um, allow them to work in an area of the concession if the host government will agree to that sort of cohabitation. Um, And in those situations where you have um, artisanal miners uh, seeking to, to behave, Uh, within the rules and behave um, well in relation to environmental and safety practices where you can have um, cohabitation. And there are many uh, models over the years where that has been made possible. It is, uh, and in many countries now, I think we're increasingly seeing um, a tendency for Companies and governments to say, in that concession area um, that may not be suitable for large-scale mining, then can you carve out uh, a corridor for um, artisanal miners? It has to be done on your hand, quite clearly, on the basis of um, of the government creating an enabling framework. Um, companies can't make up the law as they go along. Mm.
0: No, that makes sense. You also mentioned that uh, in recent times, uh, we have about three times more artisanal miners in the gold sector than previous. I mean, is this the unintended outcome of gold outperforming other commodities and creating perhaps demand, or are are you observing other factors driving this increase in artisanal mining?
1: Um, It varies. So I was talking to um, some people in Latin America recently and they see the poverty driver um, that one sees in Africa, I think, more, as less of an issue in parts of Latin America. You're quite right that the gold price being at historically relatively high levels is a driver. Um, Poverty, population growth, um, climate change, migration uh, are other drivers and things will change from country to country as to quite how that works. But in some countries, um, artisanal mining uh, in rural areas may be the second biggest economic activity after agriculture. Hmm. So
0: uh, my observation, Edward, is that uh, lawlessness, poor governance, lack of uh, cross-border law enforcement and sheer civil strife, are other causes of uh, conflict or even influx into artisanal uh, small scale mining and trading. And and so when we speak of conflict-free gold standard, this intrigues me because it almost creates an association between conflict and gold. Uh, am I missing the point here? What is the World Gold Council's uh, conflict-free gold standard intended to achieve, and why
1: the notion of conflict? So the conflict-free gold standard was introduced about uh, eight years ago. Uh, at the same time, the U.S. Congress had passed the Dodd-Frank bill on conflict minerals. The OECD was working particularly with uh, the countries around the Great Lakes region in Africa um, on its guidance documents on the responsible sourcing of minerals from conflict-affected and high-risk areas. More recently, we've seen the EU adopt its conflict minerals regulation. Um now the great majority of um gold production has nothing to do with armed conflict. However, it's very important that um, gold producers are able to show if they're operating in a conflict-affected or high-risk area that they are observing high standards, that they're ensuring that they're not funding conflict or being preyed upon by armed groups, because that would clearly um, destabilise the host um, country. One of the things that I think has come out of the debate around uh, conflict, and as I said, it much of this debate started off focusing on the Democratic Republic of Congo and surrounding areas. Um, but there are several other parts of the world where um, armed conflict has been a factor. We can think of some of the um, areas like Colombia, um, where there's been long standing civil strife. Um, And if you're operating a gold mine, you need to be able to show that you are being um, sensitive to human rights issues, particularly in how you deal with your own security needs, that you're looking at um, the human rights record of the people who may be involved in providing your security. Uh, that communities have the ability to have grievances addressed, and also that you have um, systems in place within the mine site to ensure that gold-bearing material isn't being siphoned off uh, by some sort of collusive activity between um, a group within the the mine and and, uh, an armed group. So, the conflict free gold standard is an attempt for large scale uh, gold mines to be able to show that their operating procedures make it responsible for them to continue to operate in what may be a fragile area. I think when um, you got Dodd Frank passed, for example, there was a tendency to think, well, companies shouldn't be operating in some of these areas. And that can be right if you can't um, operate responsibly. But in many situations, uh, if everyone abandons an area that's conflict affected, the lives of the people who are left there um, become intolerable. The collapse of the country becomes worse. So if you can uh, establish processes that make um, lawful uh, economic activity um, responsible and accountable, then actually you're playing a role in stabilising that society rather than abandoning it. So one of the big um, issues around the implementation of the OECD Uh, due diligence on responsible sourcing of minerals is how you get the balance right between ensuring that minerals are coming from an area that are being properly produced with good, good standards and not funding conflict, and yet not making those due diligence standards particularly for smaller players, and this is where we come back to the artisanal mining issue, um, not putting in place due diligence requirements that effectively exclude that region uh, or those people from uh, the mineral supply chain.
0: So you've spoken about the role, uh, the positive role that uh, gold producers can have uh, despite prevalence of uh, conflict. I just wonder, uh, what, if any, is the role of the countries themselves at the supply end of the value chain in supporting and contributing towards the conflict-free gold standards?
1: Well, um, uh, fundamental um, in that ultimately host governments um, have to hold the ring as much as possible. But where you have a situation of armed conflict, um, the ability of the government to enforce its will may not always be apparent. Um, I mean, in a situation of complete breakdown of law and order, then you might very well conclude that you can't operate responsibly, but um, where you have weak governance, um, then it's important that other actors play a part in trying to ensure that um, the host government is supported in in governance and regulation uh, of economic activity.
0: Um. You know, some people argue that we wouldn't have any of these problems if there wasn't any market for these commodities. That if you just dried out demand, the problem would go away, though I suspect not. Uh, because, you know, as you rightly said, on one level, we're dealing with uh, poverty, on another, uh, we are dealing with uh, lawlessness, et cetera. And that if you took out gold from the equation, another product would probably replace gold. But be that as it may, others argue that um, countries that import gold like India and China and traditionally Switzerland in Europe have a role to play in ensuring that, uh, you know, opportunities for conflict driven by gold demand uh, minimized. And, and so I, I wondered if you could shed light on what the role is and the contribution is to this initiative by importing countries.
1: Well, I think we're seeing in the case of um, the US and the European Union, um, their response to that challenge in that the legislation requires, um, in the case of the US, users of the relevant minerals and the minerals covered um, directly are tin, tantalum, tungsten and gold, Um, not just gold. Um, Increasingly, one's seeing supply chain um, initiatives uh, in cobalt to ensure that that's being responsibly produced. Um, And in the case of the EU, the new regulation looks at um, the due diligence that's taken place um, on the part of importers within that country. But I think the important thing in looking at these these challenges is that uh, industry should play uh, its role. um, So, For example, um, the OECD um, due diligence guidance sets out uh, a five-step framework for uh, due diligence on minerals um, use. Um, And there are a number of industry standards, such as the conflict-free gold standard, such as the London Bullion Market Association, the LBMA um, responsible gold guidance, which um, translate that expectation uh, set out in the OECD guidance into practical steps that can be taken uh, by industry. And civil society has a crucial role to play. Um, If one looks back at the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, you have um, NGOs like PACT and IMPACT who've played a really important role in trying to help um, artisanal miners uh, in the three T's, tin tantalum, tungsten and gold, to be able to satisfy the, uh, the due diligence information needs of actors further up the supply chain. So I think these issues uh, certainly rely on host governments, on um, importing governments, but also on industry and civil society to all play their part.
0: Mm. Uh, On the other hand, the World uh, Gold Council also has the responsible gold mining principles. Uh, Having put in place the conflict-free gold standards, what what gap did the World Gold Council perceive that necessitated the introduction of the responsible uh, gold mining principles?
1: So I think the whole idea of responsible sourcing um, and the expectation of downstream users and um, of commodities, and this applies in the garment sector, in food, as well as as in minerals, um, as expectation that people should know more about how the things, the commodities they use, how they were produced. Mm -hmm. So um, the issue of responsible sourcing has to an extent grown beyond the issue of armed conflict, which is what the um, conflict-free gold standard uh, addresses, to a broader look at environmental, social, and governance standards. So, uh, as I mentioned, the conflict-free gold standard was produced probably eight, nine years ago. The responsible gold mining principles um, were launched in 2019, uh, and we would expect to see a significant number of companies uh, reaching compliance with those over a three-year period. And the the Responsible Gold mining Principles, or RGMPs for short, um, cover 51 different performance areas, um, from governance issues around risk management processes, accountability, reporting, uh, tax and transfer pricing, through to supply chain management, through to human rights, labor rights, community interactions and raising standards, safety, environmental stewardship, um, climate change, water use. So, a whole range of issues where the principles set out uh, a performance expectation, and ultimately, companies that are implementing. Uh, those those principles will have to then have their performance, both at a corporate and at a site level, uh, independently assured, um, to ensure that they're actually meeting what they say they're doing. Um, and so the downstream users of that gold have, um, particularly then going through into the refining um, business and the 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 performance standard for that, which is called the responsible gold guidance, that provides a strong um process for end users of gold to be assured that um, good environmental social and governance standards are being observed
0: yeah so so two things uh okay to me as I listen to it. the one is the the power of uh, being proactive and creating standards for uh, the gold industry's own uh, collective oversight. But the other is also uh, ensuring implementation uh, through independent assurance. And and, and I think that sounds to be like a very strong value proposition for uh, the buyers of gold and the users downstream. However, having said that, what I, when I listen to you, all the aspects of the standards are not really unique to gold. You could apply them to uh, pretty much as many of the minerals as, as we know today. And so I wonder whether these standards belong to the World Gold Council or whether they belong in state to say an ICMM or another much more broad based initiative. Uh, am I right in seeing them as largely mining rather than gold mining, per
1: se? Well, there are, of course, different stakeholders for different commodities. Um, And in developing the RGMPs, we spent 18 months to two years talking to uh, governments, investors, downstream uses civil society uh, about what their expectations were, were about a good gold mining standard. Um, that said, there are, there are um, some generic mining issues covered, for example, responsible tailings management or um, increasing gender diversity in the gold mining sector um, or climate change. But there are also some issues embedded in the 51 principles that that are more more particularly focused on gold. So the issue of the interface with artisanal mining is not unique to gold, but it it looms larger than for most other commodities. Um, The issue of, um, of mercury use in those parts of the industry, and the interface therefore, between large scale and artisanal mining where mercury is being used is another issue the use, the importance of um, responsible use of cyanide in uh, gold processing and indeed the the embedding of the conflict free gold standard within the rgMPs are gold specific but going back to your core point um You're right that a lot of these standards are complementary to each other. Um, And certainly the World Gold Council and the ICMM uh, work closely. And we have, where we have members in common, uh, actually worked out which bits of their uh, performance standards and the Resolves Gold Mining Principles are equivalent to each other, so you don't have uh, pointless duplication. My instinct is that in the coming years we will probably see some consolidation uh, between mining standards. Um, I think that's probably what investors who are taking an in increasing interest would welcome um and and so I think we're we're very open to that idea, but the first priority is of course to make certain that the uh, the standards that have been um, generated um, are properly applied.
0: right um I'm mindful that uh, the World Gold Council recently uh, published a report on central banks and artisanal small-scale gold mining and domestic purchases problem. And and I wonder whether you could just tell us uh, what the focus of the report is and and why uh, Central Bank domestic purchases specifically?
1: So, um, the the report you mentioned is based on uh, four case studies. Uh, of the role of central banks in Mongolia, the Philippines, Ethiopia, and Ecuador, um, and it looks each of those four countries, the central bank has an established program for purchasing um, gold uh, produced by artisanal miners, um, and in some cases adding it to their national gold reserves, and in other cases potentially selling it into world markets and we were interested in looking at this mechanism with a view to the challenges that relate to market access for responsible artisanal gold miners who are trying to do the right thing but may lack capacity there may not have been formalized even if they would like to be um, And which, but therefore, have a problem in meeting the due diligence expectations of gold refiners, the next stage in the supply chain. So, we believe that solving the due diligence challenge and preventing the exclusion of responsible artisanal gold miners um, depends on a lot of different approaches in some cases it'll be around the development of um, regulated processing plants in some cases um, large-scale mining and small-scale mining can cooperate around health and safety and issues like that Um, in many cases it's going to depend on the host government um, providing a means towards legality and formalization for people who otherwise exist only in an informal economy. And we were interested in the extent to which central bank programs which are being used already to support mercury reduction programs under the Minamata Treaty could be used to help artisanal miners in those countries to meet the due diligence tests. So for example, in Ecuador, uh, they, the central bank will only buy a gold from artisanal miners who have a legal claim for, to the, the gold they're mining They, in order to get around issues like um, uh, money laundering or the potential funding of um, of criminal groups, ensuring that they that those artisanal mining cooperatives or uh, other entities um, have proper bank accounts, um, and, and so actually, the central bank there is helping uh, to raise standards environmentally because they also require them not to be using mercury or. Moving away from Mercury, talking about um, the integrity of of the financial transactions um and meeting the sorts of due diligence standards that refiners would be expecting would be expecting. So what we were looking at there is the role of central banks as one of many players who may contribute. And I'd say amongst other players, of course, that um donor governments and the World Bank also have have roles to play in this.
0: So uh, when you looked at the three uh, countries, I'm fairly conversant with the Ethiopian and Ecuadorian uh, programs, but not so in Mongolia. I I was curious to establish what was the conclusion of the report? Uh, How helpful uh, is the policy that essentially obliges uh, legal miners to sell only through the central bank in terms of, uh, say, for instance, promoting the standards that you advocate, but also in terms of uh, ensuring responsible procurement?
1: Well, um, we think that all four of the cases we looked at have some strengths. Um, I don't think any of the four central banks would claim that they're necessarily buying up all the production, they're buying up a proportion of of, of, um, production, they're playing a constructive role, and they're helping to promote um, formalisation and bringing people into um, an orderly economy. And that helps artisanal miners because it is, means they are likely to get um, something very close to the world market price. Whereas if they're dependent on um, rather shady um, middle people, um, they don't necessarily get the value they should. It's allowing them greater predictability makes them less vulnerable to extortion um, as well as hopefully helping them through a process of formalization to improve environmental and social standards. So uh, it's not going to be the answer in every country, but in those four, we see some very positive aspects.
0: Mm. So it it sounds to me listening to you uh, detail historic, um, recent and potentially future initiatives that we are dealing here with uh, if you wish, typical challenges of sustainability, which is that as we learn more and as uh, the experiences we've had both with the environment in the social and physical sense, uh, you know, become more, you know, evident that In the process, we find a mix of both solutions and and, uh, problems, the result of which is that uh, we are challenged to come up with uh, more initiatives. So so it really is a a moving target. There is no permanent solution here, is there, Edward?
1: That's both a point of of hope uh, and a point of depression, I think. Yes, we're never going to get to uh, perfection. each layer, time we're we're peeling back a layer and thinking about how to, to solve specific issues. And if I look um, at what's been achieved in the mining sector over the last 20 years, of course, um, we've had initiatives like the voluntary principles on security and human rights dealing with that specific challenge. We've had the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative dealing with a whole range of governance and transparency and accountability issues. We've got the OECD um, responsible um, sourcing due diligence and the industry standards that go with it. We have the investor expectations and consumer expectations around environmental and social standards and the more we learn as you say Sheila the the more we see the need to address these issues sometimes it'll be just through companies doing the right thing in some cases companies working with others and in some cases um, also Um, Perhaps nudging governments into being more active on some of these issues. Wonderful. I think
0: that is a good note to conclude on because I think we sometimes delude ourselves in the belief that there is a silver bullet somewhere. But in effect, uh, we learn, if only through the several initiatives, both within the gold sector but also across mining, that uh, in effect, if you wish, mankind's own knowledge is mankind's own challenge, because with knowledge, we find greater solutions. And so thank you very much, uh, Edward, for joining the Sheila Climate Extractive podcast. And I wish you and the members of the Wellgold Council well, as you, like everybody else, struggle with the challenges of sustainable
1: mining. And thank you very much, Sheila, for giving me an opportunity to have such an interesting discussion. Uh, and to the podcast for being offering the opportunity to a variety of of actors to to discuss in some detail these big challenges which we all share